Welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today we got my brother, man, one of the smartest people I know, none other than D. Watkins. What's happening, homie? How you? What's happening? How you feel? Man, I'm more blessed than I deserve, man. I truly am. <laughs> I'm just, I'm happy to be here with you, man. Uh, you know, we start each one of our episodes out by having our guests walk us through the arc of their careers. You're an artist, a lecturer, a writer, a modern day renaissance man. So talk to us about the arc of your career and your various career stops since finishing college. And at what point did you realize that you could be a writer and an artist? And did you always know that this is what you wanted to do? You know, it's funny, um, you know, when I get that question, because I think I I always wanted to be a storyteller, but I never knew being a storyteller was a profession. I, I was in love with storytelling since I was a small child. I was that kid that was just sit out on the block all night falling asleep. (laughs) <laughs> and people would be telling me to go in the house, but I just was so scared that I was going to miss something. Um, but it, it didn't really all come together for me until I was in my late 20s. Um, I've been through the streets uh, for the bulk of my life. And um, what that means, people always be like they've been in the streets. Oh, what you? I mean, I, I don't um, ask because I saw an interview. <laughs> I asked Bobby Shimurda that Shimurda the other day. He was like, man, I so crap. Like, I, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I'm yeah, I'm. I'm Bobby Schmurter, essentially. I, 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 came, I came up, I came up um, from a family of, of, of hustlers and, and drug dealers and um, sold my fair share. And, you know, things like like what I do now, like working in television and, and writing and these things, they weren't really options. Um, everybody was even working for the city, working for Johns Hopkins Hospital mm-hmm. or because um, I'm in Baltimore, for those who don't know, but they was working for the city, Johns Hopkins Hospital. Or they, or, they, or they were selling drugs and selling drugs was a fast track to getting any and everything you wanted. And, um, and, and, and that's what I did. So from living that life and just going through those different things, um, you know, I, I, I hit a point where I wanted to do something different. You know, I was the dude that was like 23 years old and my friends were like 18, <laughs> you know, yeah. because everybody from my generation was even going to jail on their way home from jail or they were gone. And um, I wanted to do some different things, but I didn't know. I went to college. I enrolled in the University of Baltimore and tried all of these different things. Like I, I tried criminal justice and there was a bunch of cops in the class. And I was like, nah, I can't do this. And then, um, and then, I, was a, um, then I was a history major and I, I was cool with that. But then I went, to, I went to the hospital to have a procedure done. And I'm landing in the hospital. It's pretty nurse walks in, right? And she has the book stuck to her face. And I've never saw an adult, um, somebody um, from my own demographic, read a read a book like that. So I was like, yo, that must be a good book. And she said, oh, well, you love that book. And I said, what? I said, why would I love the book? She said, because it's about you. I said, about me? She said, it's a book about thugs. And I was like, yo, I'm not a thug. So she's like, I mean, why the basement tattoos? And I was like, they faded. I'm, I'm not getting finished getting them done. And she's like, well, how come everyone who comes to see you smells like weed? And I was like, they got cataracts. And then we shared a little, we shared, we shared like a little laugh and she rolled out and, you know, she gave me my medicine and all that. And I went to sleep. And when I woke up, she left the book on my bedside. And the book was the coldest winter ever. And I never knew you could write a book about that. Like I, you know, coming out of high school, um, you know, they, they were, they were giving us books that didn't really speak to, to any experience that I was really trying to connect to or relate with. So I didn't know. And what she did is she gave me that book and I finished it. And 
then I've read everything else Sister Soldier ever wrote in my life. And then, you know, I, and, and from there, I found out about Toni Morrison and I found out about James yeah. Baldwin. And then I found out some of their contemporaries, like the beat poets and, you know, on the road, a neck and lunch. And then it, it turned into like a snowball effect for me. So from the reading of Codas, whenever I end up sitting in a housing projects, reading Fyodor Dostoevsky, the idiot. And it just, <laughs> and books just took me all around the world. And then that process is um kind of where I figure I, I wanted to add something to the conversation. You're a Baltimore native, and we'll talk about We Own This City shortly, but talk about how much of an influence Baltimore has been on your life as an artist. Uh, it's the Baltimore has been it's the most tremendous influence because, um you know, here, you know, it's, it's a different kind of city. In Baltimore, people don't love you because you want to write or because you're an artist or because you want to do like some type of, you know, I don't know, spoken word poetry in front of like church. Like they, nobody cares about that. They only care when people outside of the city care. So just like for an example, um, I didn't get a chance to publish in a lot of places based in Baltimore until I published it in the New York Times. The Baltimore is a tough love city. And I, yeah. I think that that kind of resilience gave me the energy just to last in this industry. Um, I can go into a writer's room. I can go to war with a publisher because I know that no, no, nobody's ever going to care unless you put out the product you're supposed to be putting out. And Baltimore did that for me. Do you feel like The Wire or shows like The Wire have only shown one aspect of Baltimore? Um, or do you feel like shows like The Wire and your show, We Own This City, are part of how people outside of Baltimore help better understand the city? You know, I, I think um, I think the wire gets a bad rap sometimes when, when people talk about um, negative I, portrayal. I, I, fuck, I fuck with it. I mean, I thought it was a yeah. I thought it was a layered, complex portrayal. No, but I have this I, like I like I've made I've I've spoke about this like even with like younger people coming up in a city, and you know it's crazy. A lot of them who have that argument, they never watched the show. Yeah. So it's like, oh, the why is negative, the why is negative, why is negative. Written, it was written by white boys too, so they have a problem with that off top. Yeah, they got they got they got a problem with it. A white boys spearheaded it. Um D- David Simon spearheaded the show. And then he, you know, he had like George and Richard and Ed and all of those guys in. But what I will say is um, you know, and, and like I said, I've I've researched this extensively. Um one at the at the time the show was out, it was the blackest cast in television. Right. Right. So you can't take a 2022 standard and compare it to what happened in 2000. We are living in a different time. That's that's the first thing. Um, The the second thing is if you look at the diversity of blackness in the show, it's there from the politicians to the police officers, to people in the street, to people doing community work, to people um, working in the school system. And here's a here's a the, the, the last point that is real life. It's real life. Yeah. These the way these worlds intersect is the real thing. And I think um I, I, I think that people need to watch the show to, to fully understand why a lot of things don't get done in urban areas. Everybody owes everybody a favor. And every time somebody gets in power to do something, they start trading them favors in or they fall victim to their own ambition. And then we end up in the same spot. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 
miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. Talk to us about We Own This City. Why is this show necessary and what story does it tell? So my, the biggest thing for me when We Own This City and the reason why I was so happy to contribute to the project is because, so one, it was all of the same writers who did The Wire stuff for me. I was, I, was only, I was the only new guy. And coming in, some of the guys in the room had a perspective of, you know, how things were when they were working on The Wire, right? Because some of them left Baltimore since, since they started the show. And I was able to come in and say, yo, one thing we need to do is dismantle the hero cop narrative. Like this, like the only profession where your first day on the job, people already call you a hero. You can be out of shape. You can be that guy who runs a mile in like 45 minutes. You can have, you know, a low IQ and never, ever help anybody in your life. But they instantly call you a hero because you have that badge that we need to erase that because we won't be able to see the real problems with policing in this country until we get past that you are instantly a winner and a hero type of mentality. Mm. And I wanted to destroy it. I wanted to dismantle that. Like I wanted to rip that apart and I, I got a chance to do that. You did. Police, <laughs> police corruption is real. It's always been an issue and it's particularly been an issue in, in Baltimore. What did you learn about policing both generally and in Baltimore and doing this show? And how do you think we solve this issue of police corruption? You know, honestly, I think it needs to be gutted and we need to we need to figure out something new. What we have right now doesn't work. And I know it sounds like, you know, an extremely radical idea. Um, and coming from my perspective, I'm going to be completely honest. I don't call the police for anything. Like if you, you know, well, let me go back. The only way I would call the police is if you like stole something from my car or like my house and I needed to get like a report for insurance. But if you bust me over the head with a gun, like if I'm not going to get you back or if I'm not going to be Dr. King and just walk away, you know, <laughs> these are my only options. I'm not calling the police. So I can easily sit here and say, oh, yeah, well, defund and things like that. But if I'm going to step away from my own experience and, and how I look at these systems, I, I, what we have doesn't work. Um, a lot of people talk about defunding police. One of the things that you know, I think we should add into the um, conversations is dis is disarming them. Like, you know, because, you know, I, like I said, I lived in these neighborhoods, my, the bulk of my life. And I, I know what happens in a lot of these situations. And I don't know anyone who has a story that goes, oh, we were, we were in danger and they, they started shooting. And then a cop pulled up and he pulled out his guns and he saved us. Like nobody has that story. So why are police officers with guns doing all these traffic stops? Why are they responding to these situations where they're terrified of the people who they have to confront and then it ends in bloody murder and we you know and we and we get these 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 you know these these, these videos that that i'm sick of seeing let me just explain because a lot of listeners may not understand your distrust but explain what your distrust is rooted in my distrust in the police department is rooted in personal experience um i've had one positive experience with a police officer that was officer friendly when i was like in the second or third grade he came in he gave us donuts he told us you know to stay out of drug-free zones 
which was difficult because everyone in the school lived in a drug-free zone. That whole neighborhood was declared a drug-free zone. In Baltimore, um, drug-free zones are high drug areas. So they feel like hanging up these signs are deterrent to um, keep mm-hmm. young people from getting mixed up in it. But it's kind of like if I was like a junkie, a drug addict from out of town, and I was looking to like where to buy drugs, I would just follow the drug-free zone signs because that's where all the drugs are. And you know, he was, he was a nice, he was a nice guy, but by the time, you know, I got to the fifth grade and I was a little taller, um, shoe size, a little bigger, I became the bad guy. And that has been an ongoing thing ever since, um, beaten by cops. Yes. Guns pulled on me by cops. Yes. Arrested for something that I didn't do. Absolutely. Um, any and every negative story you want to insert is, is there. So that, that distrust is, I even had friends I grew up with, um, become police officers and transforming into different people. It's almost like something that they put in the, in the water at the station or something. So, um, so yeah. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh, how so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your Ikea items for store credit, or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. Wearing a men's warehouse outfit makes you confident, like you could do anything. So you dance like no one is watching, even though everyone is watching. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you interview like the job is already yours because it is. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you golf as if the rules don't apply to you because you're too well-dressed for rules. Because of the men's warehouse outfit. At Men's Warehouse, get measured, get fitted, get hot, get confident in everything from tailored suits to underwear and all the stuff in between. Love the way you look at Men's Warehouse. Talk a little bit about the Baltimore Gun Trace Task Force. Why was it created and why did it become such a magnet for corruption? And how much did you work with uh, current and former Baltimore police in making the show? Yeah, that's that's wild because um, so the Gun Trace Task Force was a group of and it's and it's not it's not a new idea. Um, Baltimore has been having these flex squads, these plainclothes cops that get the opportunity to do citywide work for a long time, right? To fight, mm-hmm. to fight the drug war, to um, to try to handle our, our gun problem, whatever. The Gun Trace Task Force was was ran by a guy named Thomas Allers at first, but then it was taken over by this guy named Wayne Jenkins. And these were eight elite officers who had who were trusted to get guns off of the streets. And they were praised and lauded for their work because they did get guns off the streets. However, they were also planning them. So <laughs> there's, there's that. And these guys, every every one they take, they throw one down on the ground. <laughs> exactly. And he, these guys did more than just plant guns on people. They sold drugs. Um, they robbed. They robbed drug dealers and sold drugs. They plant guns on people. They um, they they would dress up like mailmen 
and rob citizens. They rob civilians. Um, <laughs> like, and the list goes on and on. If, if people saw the latest episode, um, it was it was little person's night at a strip club. And there was a little person dancer and he robbed the little person. They didn't put this in the show, but he took 2,500 from that woman. After he just robbed an apartment complex for 20,000, he, 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 you know, the other cops wanted to go home. He still wanted to hang out and celebrate the $20,000 thing. So he goes to the strip club and he robs a little, it was little person night. He robs a little person. He, he uh, <laughs> I'm trying to get my politically correct, right? He robs her and he takes the, he takes the 2,500 from her. And that was just like another knife for them. And that's that's Wayne Jenkins. He ran the gun trace task force. And these guys went on a tear um, when the uprising happened in Baltimore. Right. And um, after Freddie Gray was killed, he was he was the guy that was taking care of police officers, buying them drinks, making sure they had lunch, giving them hugs. You, he, he's seen on camera dragging them, you know, officers off the streets and, and tucking them in and all of that. And he got a medal from the police commissioner for his work during the unrest. The funny thing about it is that at the same time he got that medal, he was the one who broke into the pharmacies and stole um, hundreds of thousands of dollars in Percocets and Oxycontins um, and, and then sold them in, in for profit. So this, this is the Gun Trace Task Force. And my research mostly came from, um, one, I covered the trial. Um, two, um, we had access to thousands of pages in, in court documents, um, proffers, um, victim impact statements. And uh -huh. then three, my personal experience, I have run-ins with one of the cops, Daniel Herschel. Um, he was like, he was, he was one of the first cops who, um, to beat me when I was a young man. And, um, I, I've been through that with him and, and, and his stories and my story is kind of funny because we grew up like a mile apart, but we're from two different worlds. And, we crossed paths multiple times. The first time I crossed paths with him was when I was on a basketball court and they used to rush the court and make all of us lay on the ground. So imagine 40 young black men laying on their face and for nothing, right? Just for kicks and giggles. Because they can. And because they can. Then when I got into the streets and I started hustling, he would clip me for like $300 here, $500 there. And it didn't really bother me because I would rather get you $500 than going to prison. Um, but then when I became a journalist, I was covering a local rapper and he was harassing a local rapper and locking him up every time he had a show in the effort to stall his career. This kid ended up doing like two years in prison for nothing. Right. So I kept coming across this cop. So I, I, I wrote all of these articles about him and the research that I, I put into those articles is when David Simon started reading them and said, wait a second, like you, you, you got to get in on this. Um, come join the room. And it just kind of like turned into a move from there. But yeah. I didn't work. I didn't work. I didn't, so, but the actors, they work with police officers closely. Um, David's a researcher. I'm a researcher. Um, Zorzi's a researcher. Um, and then we have Fenton's book as a, as a reference. So we all, like all of us just brag about our own work and our own research. So we didn't really necessarily do that, but the actors were going on ride-alongs. They were learning the language. Um, there's one story about Bernthal and Josh Charles, they chased this kid and they went on a ride along and they had their vest on, they had the gear and they jumped out the car and they chased the kid and they catch him and they look at each other and Josh Charles is like, what the fuck am I supposed to do with him? And John's like, ah, shit, we're not cops. And then they just told him, kid, run that way. And they just sent him in a different direction. And I'm like, yeah, y'all went, y'all went in too deep. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the, the deep, deep cover got the best. Yeah, they, they was Omar Epps, man. They, they was in there. They was deep. <laughs> Have things improved 
in the Baltimore Police Department. I had Mayor Brandon Scott on a couple months ago, and I left that interview hopeful. Have you seen things improve in Baltimore in the last few years in terms of the police department and corruption? Nah, it hasn't. And, you know, and that's not even like a knock on Brandon. I think Brandon has a has a big heart and I think Brandon it's has a vested interest. I mean, yeah, it's, a, it's, a t- it's the toughest job. It's, it's, the, toughest, it's the toughest job in America. Um, no, no one knows how to quite figure out the murder rate. So um, I, I think Brandon approaches the job with love. However, um, we're dealing with a serious cultural issue. Police officers look at me and they see them and they, you know, it's us like an us versus them thing. And it's just been like that for a long time. Um, and, you know, everybody has the answers, but we're not we're not we're not solving the problems. So that is a very political way, but honest assessment um, of where they are in the police department. I, I know it's a show about police corruption and I also know that if it's David Simon, we'll also see a show where it won't be so easy to pick a side between the community and dirty cops or dirty cops and various clean cops. Talk about how the show muddles the water and walk us through the various conflicts that arise in the show as the plot develops. So from from David's from David's perspective, um, and, you know, if I'm if I'm speaking for David in his perspective, um, he feels like the system made Jenkins that way, right? Jenkins came in one way and the system made him that way. And one thing I should say to you, to your listeners is that this isn't like, you're not talking about events from like, <laughs> like 20 years ago, you know, this all went down in 2017. Yeah, so, yeah, this yeah, is, yeah. <laughs> you know, like literally like not that long ago. Um, but from, from, from David's perspective, um, he wanted to capture the problem with the war on drugs and how the system made Jenkins. And from my perspective, so he looks at it as if it's a change in the system. My perspective is, no, the system hasn't changed. It's the same exact system. And it has been producing people like Jenkins um, for as long as I can remember, right? So this is this is this is what I what I what I bring to the table and what I what I what I'll say about the plot. I can write around a narrative of what the system, you know, the changing in the system because I truly believe that it is getting worse. Um, what I couldn't write around is that Jenkins was this pure guy with this big heart, and lucky enough, I didn't have to do that. Um, we we were able to create the show and show we were able to create the show showing that. He came in green and he saw how to steal and he had and, and, and he had every 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 opportunity to not steal, but he chose to steal. And and, and I think people are going to kind of see like how you can come in thinking that you're going to make X amount of money plus overtime, but you still have a choice. And I was glad to show that he, he had that choice and, and he chose he chose violence, too. You know, the funny thing about the system, as you talk about, is that I, I always tell folks the system ain't broken. It works the way it was designed to work. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, with this show in The Wire, why do you think Baltimore is such a fascinating backdrop for shows? And when will we own this city be on and how can people watch it? I think, um, you know, at the end of the day, um, it's an American story. And it's the perspective of a whole lot of people. Like we, we, we've been covering these marches and these protests and we've been hearing people tell their stories and we've been seeing the families, these victims on television crying um, ever since cell phone video cameras came out, right? This show is going to clearly show people why these moments exist. 
why these movements are happening, why these people don't feel the same way about police officers as you. And it's going to do it in a loud way, in a clear way, and in a way that, um, you know, that, that should shift, that should cause some type of change. We on the city comes on every Monday at nine o'clock. Um, my book, black boy smile is out today. <laughs> Everywhere books are Let's sold. That. <laughs> one of the best, you're one of the best writers I know. So I, that's that's what's hey. up. Hey, where can you watch the show? Talk, talk to the people. Tell them. Give them that. Oh, the, the show. The show is on HBO. Uh, it's HBO and HBO Max every Monday at 9 p.m. Eastern time. And right after the show, check out the official uh, We Own This City podcast. I'm the host, and I bring in not only actors and um, executives, but I got some of the some actual survivors of these cops on there too. So we're having whole complete conversations. That's what's up. My brother, man, you're doing so much, man. I just can't wait to watch you continue to grow. I can't wait to work with you on some of these projects, man. D. Watkins, thank you for joining Bacardi Sales Podcast, man. Thank you, man. I'm always around, man. I'm phone call away. Let me know. All right, man. Be easy. Thanks, man.